0: Let's take our Bibles and open them to the Book of Genesis, chapter forty. And as you're turning there, let me just give a, a word of thanks and appreciation to our our worship team and our audiovisual team that uh, serve so well and faithfully and diligently each week to lead us in worship. And I was just reminded this week as we. Uh, began our fall semester. So last Sunday night, all the Awana clubs started, and then this Wednesday night, university classes started, and uh, Children's Choir, and up the Saudi Daisy campus, we started Club 316. And our worship teams that serve each week, and you had Sunday school teachers that prepared, and greeters that got here early. And just each week at Stewart Heights, and amongst the three campuses, there's just this group of people that serve so faithfully and so diligently. And I'm so thankful because they come and they serve and they give and they give their time, they give their their talents, they give their efforts, they give their energy uh, to serve this body. And I'm just so grateful and thankful. And so I want to encourage you when you see those folks uh, to give them a word of thanks and encouragement and, and gratitude. Uh, they serve each week so well and just I'm very thankful for them. As we move into uh, this lengthy portion, portion of the text this morning and... Genesis chapter 40 and 41. uh, We're going to try to cover quite a bit. Well, let me rephrase. We're going to cover quite a bit. I'm going to try to do so in an appropriate amount of time. I appreciate the chuckle back there. You have no idea the confidence that instills in me. As we follow along our theme of this series of Looking at the life of Joseph and learning from him, not about him, but about God. And, and God uh, revealing himself through the text, God's revelation of himself. And, and Joseph is not the main character of the text. And this week we're going to be introduced to a few more characters. We've got a, a cupbearer and a baker. They're also not the main characters in the text. Even Pharaoh is not the main character of the text. But who is the main character of the text? God, thank you. I appreciate that. There's no blank for that, but if you want to write it in and underline it, that's great. But it's mindful, we need to be mindful that we keep that at the forefront, that especially as things start circumstantially trending a better direction for Joseph this week. Because if you remember back in the earlier portions of the text, Joseph is the favored son of his father and he puts that on full display through the way that he speaks and the way that he treats his son. He even gives him a, the coat uh, and that puts him at odds with his brothers and so he goes from the favored son into a, uh, to being kidnapped by his brothers and thrown into a pit and then and rescued from the pit and sold into slavery and taken to Egypt and he's put as the favored slave in a household. But if you're a favored slave, you're still a what? He's still a slave. He's not the favored son now. He's the favored slave and he gets falsely accused and he's thrown into the prison and where he becomes the favored prisoner. But if you're the favored prisoner in prison, you're still what? Still a prisoner in prison. You're still not home. He's a long way from his father's table. He's a long way from his father's favor. But he had these dreams back here that God revealed to him some things that were going to happen. And in the context of the the passages for today, we're coming on the heels of what we looked at last week in chapter 39. We're at the beginning and the end of the chapters. The chapters bookended with this phrase that, that the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord is with him in Potiphar's house. And he gives him favor and blesses the Egyptians' home because of all that God does in and through Joseph that Potiphar actually reaps some of the benefit. He's thrown into prison in the latter part of the chapter. God is with him and the jailer gives him favor and puts all the things and all the other prisoners under Joseph's care. But again, if you're the favored prisoner in the prison, you're still in prison. And so we pick up in chapter 40 where some other characters are introduced into the narrative. While Joseph is in prison, while he's there, a cupbearer and a baker of Pharaoh have Uh, offended their king and they are thrown into prison and they're introduced to Joseph because they're put under Joseph's care. And so look in the beginning of chapter 40 and we're going to move through as much of this text as we can. Because I don't want to be dismissive about the text because the text is the central purpose of what we're trying to do here because we want to engage with the text so that we know the God of the text. But in the beginning of chapter 40, We find this, then it came about that after these things the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was furious with these two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, so he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. And the captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them and he took care of them and they were in confinement for some time. There's a timestamp stamp there, and timestamps are important as we follow through the narrative of this text. We're not told a definite amount of time, but they're there for a while. And then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt, who were confined in jail, both had a dream the same night, each man with his own dream, and each man with its own interpretation. And when Joseph came to them in the morning, he observed them. Behold, they were dejected. And he asked Pharaoh's officials, who were with him in confinement in his master's house, Why are your faces so sad today? And they said to him, We have had a dream, and there is no one to interpret it. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. So press pause there. The theme of dreams is woven all throughout this text. It's sort of what started the quote-unquote trouble for Joseph. He had... A couple of dreams and told his brothers and his family, and they hated him for it. Remember when they hated him and they hated him some more and they hated him even more? The dreams didn't help the building of hatred. Because, oh yeah, in the dreams, you're going to bow down to me. Remember the sheaves and the stars? We're going to bow down to you. Psst! That's the rough translation of the Hebrew. Very rough. But you get the context. Fast forward in the narrative, here's some more people with dreams. And Joseph makes the same, do not all interpretations belong to God? So tell it to me. So the cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me, and on the vine there were three branches, and it was budding, and the blossoms came out, and the clusters produced ripe grapes, and now... Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. And so I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup. And I put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. And then Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Timestamp. Pay attention. But three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. Lift up your head. He'll turn your face up. And he's downcast. He'll lift up your head. Lift up your face. Restore you to your office. Wonderful interpretation." you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom when you were his cupbearer. Verse 14, only keep me in mind when it goes well with you and please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. We have a little insight there in verse 14. We could make Joseph the superhero of faith in this narrative. Verse 14 gives us the indication and some implication he'd rather not be there. He's the favored prisoner in prison, but he's still not at home at his father's table. And so he tells the person who he gives the favorable interpretation to, in three days you're going to be restored back to your place. Will you do me this kindness and just mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of here? Verse 15, for in fact I was kidnapped from the land of Hebrews, and even here I've done nothing that they should put me into the dungeon. And when the chief baker saw that he had interpreted favorably, he said to Joseph, I also saw in my dream. You can almost see his face getting super excited here. He's thinking, you know, my dream was similar. You had three vines, I had three baskets. Three days, you're going back to your job. Three days, it's got to be good for me. It doesn't say that, but sort of gives the implication of that because there seems to be an eagerness. You told him that thing and you made a request of him, so tell me something good as well. I also saw in my dream, and behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head. And on top of the three of the baskets, there were all sorts of baked goods for Pharaoh. And the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. And then Joseph said, this is their interpretation of the three baskets are three days. And these, <sighs> within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you. I feel like he might have said, what's that? <laughs> I heard three days and the lifting of the head, but that last phrase... That landed different. He'll lift up your head from you. And then hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat your flesh off of you. Thus it came about on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his office, and he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker. Baker, just as Joseph had interpreted to him. Yet. The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Abandoned. Forgotten. But the Lord is with him. Remember how I said timestamps are important? Now, it happened at the end of two full years... So fast forward in the narrative two years. We're told zero between 23 and 41 won, except that two years have passed. All he said, was, will you remember me and do me a kindness and get me out of this prison? Done nothing. I was kidnapped, and even here, I've done nothing to end up here. Will you do me this kindness and remember me? Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. And behold, he was standing by the Nile. And lo, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat. And they grazed in the marsh grass. Behold, seven other cows came up from after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt. And they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven ears, thin and scorched by the east winds, sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And now it came about in the morning that his spirit was troubled. And so he sent and called for the magicians of Egypt and, it was, and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret, the Pharaoh, interpret them to Pharaoh. Verse 9, Then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh again, saying, I would make mention today of my own offenses. There in verse 9, you get a little bit of the motive for why the the chief cupbearer uh, didn't mention Joseph because mentioning Joseph might also remind Pharaoh of why he was there in the first place. So he comes two years later and says, "I I hesitate to mention this because I don't want to remind you of what I did to get back here. But while I was in prison, Pharaoh was furious with his servant and put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief, cup baker, or chief baker. And we had a dream on the same night. He and I, each of us, dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. And now Hebrew youth was with us there, and a servant of the captain of the bodyguard, and we related to him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one, he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came about that just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me to my office, but he hanged him. And so then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and put his cl- put, and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard, it is said about you, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Press pause. Purposes of this sermon series are that God is glorified. And second, that His people are encouraged while in the midst of suffering. That God is glorified and that we as His people would be encouraged in the midst of suffering because we may be in some place of trial or suffering in our own life as we gather here this morning. And while Joseph is not the main character of the text, God is the main character of the text... And we learn about God's sovereignty being on grand display. We also can learn about how to walk as Joseph walked in faith and trust. But here is the place of crux, if you will, in the text. Because we've seen the context. We've seen the new players introduced into the narrative with the two people in prison. And now Pharaoh and his, his court. We've been introduced to some of the time stamps. We understand where in the context of the narrative this is coming. That it started with Joseph being the favored son at his father's table. And now through a series of very particular events, he is now has an audience with the Pharaoh. And So two things that I, can, that I want us to, to see in this text, but particularly now it is coming on full display. That God displays his sovereignty in Joseph's life particularly by giving Joseph insight. God displays his sovereignty by giving Joseph insight. He didn't just have some random dream back in chapter 37. He had particular dreams and told them to his family. That we are left with the implication then that God in his sovereignty gave these dreams to to Joseph, And so not only did he work through Joseph's dreams, but as we move through the text, we see that God also gave dreams to the prisoners, but not only gave them those dreams, but also gave Joseph the ability to interpret them. And Joseph recognizes that back in the text. When they say, well, nobody can interpret them. And they say, And he tells them, aren't all interpretations, don't they all belong to God? So don't tell them to me. And so he tells them the interpretation that God enabled him to give, that God delivered through him, and they came to pass. And now that has positioned him in front of Pharaoh. And I want us to catch what Pharaoh asked. It comes to me that you are able to interpret them. Joseph has the ear of... Of Pharaoh has an audience with him. He's got the grand stage. If there was ever a time in this narrative for Joseph to exalt himself, it's here. But he recognizes that he does not have insight, but rather God gives it to him. And so through Pharaoh's dreams, listen to how he responds. in Verse 16, Joseph then answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. Pharaoh said, I've heard that you can interpret dreams. It's not in me. It's God. When placed on the grand stage in front of the one who in Egypt is God, he says, what you're asking is not in me, but it is in God. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And so while God displays his sovereignty in and through Joseph's life by giving him insight, Joseph displays God's sovereignty by giving God credit. Back in prison. Don't all interpretations belong to God? Prisoners come to him, points them to God. Back that narrative up a little bit. Potiphar notices that his house is blessed by God because of God's faithfulness to Joseph. Potiphar recognizing God's faithfulness. The prisoners being pointed to God. Now on the grand stage in front of Pharaoh, Joseph gives glory to God. Continue in the text. It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And so Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, In my dream, behold, I was standing By the banks of the Nile. And he relays the dreams to him. Verse 25. Again, Joseph pointing glory to God. Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. And God has told Pharaoh what he is about to do. You didn't have just some random dream. And I can only tell you what it's about because God enables me to. But this is what's going on. God has told you what he's about to do. God exercising his sovereignty over Pharaoh's life by putting dreams in his sleep to let him know what's coming. Pharaoh's not just dreaming random things. God exercising his sovereignty over someone that does not claim to be a God follower, but rather proclaims himself to be God. God giving him a picture of what's coming and giving him the one who will interpret it because God is ultimately in control in all of these things. So we see in verse 25, for now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told Pharaoh what he's about to do. Then he lays out the fact that there's coming seven years of good and seven years of famine. Now look down to verse 32. Now as, far, now, now as for repeating the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God and God will quickly bring it about. You see God's sovereignty there in 41, 32. The reason he gave you two of them is because it's done. It's a done deal. He's told you what he's going to do and you can, you can believe with certainty that it's going to happen. The determination of it and the execution of it are all under God's sovereignty. He's given you a seven-year heads up that there's a famine coming. Sovereign. Sovereign over people. Sovereign over his creation. God's sovereignty on full display. and Joseph displaying his sovereignty by giving credit and recognizing this is what God is doing, this is where God is at work. He's giving you the, the picture of what's coming. And listen to the boldness that he has in verses because he, he could have stopped at verse 32. You asked for an interpretation. here it is. Here's why I he gave it to you twice. This is certain. That we have verse 33 through the rest of the chapter. He doesn't just stop in answering the question that Pharaoh asked. Now he gives him the answer to the question Pharaoh didn't ask but probably should have. So now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land. And let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt for the seven years of abundance. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming And store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority And let them guard it And let the food become as a reserve for the land of the seven years of famine Which will occur in the land of Egypt So that the land may not perish during the famine And so the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all of his servants And so Pharaoh said to his servants Can we find a man like this in whom there is a divine spirit? Catch the irony In Egypt, who is God? Pharaoh. Back up through the text. You thought, Brian, why did you harp on so much about Joseph giving credit to God in Pharaoh's court? Because he gave credit to God in Pharaoh's court. Twice. I don't have it. It's not me. It's God. God will give you the interpretation. God has told you, verse 25, what he's going to do. Verse 32 and 33, here's why he gave it to you twice, because it's certain it's going to happen. Gives him a plan. Pharaoh thinks, if there's only someone in Egypt who has this divine spirit, Joseph, excuse me, Pharaoh, recognizing through Joseph's proclamation of God's work and God's sovereignty, God's declaration of what is coming, Pharaoh doesn't dismiss that and saying, what do, you, what do you mean God will show you? I'm God. He says, the one true God has determined this is going to happen. And so if there was only someone in Egypt who had, this, had a divine spirit. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you, there's no reference no grand proclamation that Pharaoh becomes a God follower. But here, he's at least a God-recognizer. He's at least recognizing that the God that you talk about. Since God has informed you of all of this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house. And according to your command, all of my people shall do homage. Catch Culturally, what's happening here? I'm I'm giving you charge of my whole house. Here are the keys. Not only that, but all the people will do homage to you. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. Signifying, saying, "Your, Your word will be my word. You're working under Pharaoh's authority, and he clothed them in garments of fine linen, and put in the gold necklace around his neck, and made him ride in his second, and he had him ride in his second chariot, and they proclaimed before him, bow the knee, and he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, "Though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt." And so Pharaoh named Joseph Zaphnath paneah I've been working on that all week. And they gave him Asenath, the, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, as his wife. And Joseph went forth over all the land of Egypt. Now, Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh. Press pause. Timestamp. He's 30 years old. How old is he in uh, Genesis 37? You're like, oh, that's, that's, that's a bunch of chapters ago, Brian. I didn't know there'd be a quiz. It's open book. Go then, look. 17. Thirteen years have gone by. Right, math people? Thank you, I hear you're correct. I appreciate that. It's like I'm not a math guy, but that's close. This has taken a minute to get from the pit to Pharaoh's palace. We read this knowing the rest of the story. So when he's in the pit, we know what's going to happen. When he gets sold into slavery, we know what's going to happen. When he gets thrown into prison, we know what's going to happen. When he interprets the dreams of the prisoners, we know what's going to happen. He's going to get forgotten. But we know he's going to end up here. We even know the rest of the, the book. We have access to it anyway. All Joseph is doing is being faithful in where God put him. But as we read, he clearly doesn't like being in prison. He'd rather not be. But at no place in any part of this text do we read where Joseph said, This is not going nearly fast enough for me. My suffering, my trial is lasting longer than I anticipated, so you clearly aren't working, so I'm done. I'm finished. You're not working on my timetable. I was the favored son. You told me back here somewhere that people were going to bow down to me, and the only people bowing down to me right now is nobody. We don't have any indication of anything like that in the text. What we have is a consistent recognition that with Joseph, the Lord is with him. And Joseph's response is to give glory to God. All through these slow, lingering days of trial. We see God's sovereignty being exercised in Joseph's life. We see Joseph recognizing God's sovereignty, giving glory to him to all those that he comes in contact with. And now, as we're 13 years into this narrative and things are starting to circumstantially trend in a better direction for him, we see him still giving glory to God. Regardless of the circumstances in this text, God is unchanging, and Joseph seems to be trusting and resting. But at the same time, in his trusting and resting, he seems to be very honest with where he is. But ultimately, working under God's sovereignty, we see that God uses trial to position Joseph. God uses trials to position Joseph. He uses Joseph's trial all the way through this text. Because while he's now second in charge in the nation, in the, the, the people of Egypt, And his circumstances are better, and he's got the respect of the people, he's got a wife, we're going to see that he's going to have sons, he's still not at his father's table. He's still not at home. He's still in a place of trial. Even though it's better, it's still not perfect. And God not only uses Joseph's trial or or, or to position him, but now He also uses Pharaoh's trial. He's troubled by these dreams and He's troubled in the fact that famine is coming to His country and so if He only had somebody that could bring Him this wisdom, oh, this guy that told me the dreams, let me put you in place. So God using trial of Pharaoh to put Joseph in a place ultimately to glorify God because in all of this God is being faithful to his word that he gave to Abraham way back here. Genesis chapter 12. I'll make you father of multitudes. When he got that promise, how many children did Abraham have? Zero. Fast forward 38 chapters, a bunch of generations later. And if we move on through Joseph's life into the book of Exodus, we're going to have the narrative of how Joseph dies and gets buried in his homeland. But that the people have multiplied in Egypt. And eventually there's going to come a Pharaoh who did not know him. There's a Pharaoh who will arise that does not know Joseph. And how Joseph saved the nation. But all he sees is that there are too many. And there we have the book of Exodus. Because in the larger context, Joseph's narrative exists in God expressing his faithfulness to keep his word, to be faithful to call out a people for himself, that he gave that promise to Abraham, that he's working all the way through the Old Testament, that eventually there will come the one who will redeem all the world. Because all of this suffering fits in the grander picture of God working to glorify himself among all the nations. And Joseph knows this part of the story, and he knows the promise of that one, but he doesn't know really all of day 963 in prison, how that worked, all the way out there. That God's faithfulness and His sovereignty on grand display, in and through Joseph's trial, to position him to ultimately save his people. Because ultimately in all of this, God will be glorified. Go back to the text. Now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. And during the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt. And he placed the food in the cities. And he placed every city, the food from its surrounding Fields And then Joseph stored up the grain in abundance like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. And now the year before the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Asenath, the, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore to him. And Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my trouble in my father's household. And he named the second son Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So in Joseph's life here, through each stage of the trial and the suffering, and now, well, circumstances are better, they're still not perfect. He still recognizes God's work. That he has made him forget God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. Now, the word here, forget, doesn't mean he's forgotten them. Like he had trouble remembering his brother's names. That's not it. Like suddenly, all the events of the previous, now close to 20 years, he suddenly can't remember. How in the world did I get to Egypt? He's put them away. God has made me forget. And God has made me fruitful in the land of my... What's he call it? The land of my what? It's open book. It's right there. Affliction. Still ain't home. He's made me forget all my trouble. He's made me forget all of my affliction. He's given me these sons... He's made me fruitful. I recognize His gifting, His blessing, His his bestowing on me all of this in the land of my affliction. Fast forward to here. Everything that we learn about God through this text, unchanging through the generations, So while we as New Testament followers of Jesus live in a world that is broken. That ultimately is not yet our home. And will not be. This is the land of our sojourn. God is faithful. God is sovereign. His sovereignty is not tested. It is not pressed. It is not changed. It is not affected or influenced by circumstance or the passing of time. God is who He is in Genesis 2. Exodus, Leviticus, all the way to now. All the way through the end of the book of Revelation and beyond. God is. He does not change. So just as God is faithful here, He is also faithful now. So then what do we do? How do we bring this part of the text to some sense of conclusion? While we live in the land of our affliction, while we live the land of our sojourn, while some of us may have been here this morning, and it was all we could do to get here, And we sing, God, you are so good. And we want to experientially affirm that and believe it. But we also know that in the midst of our suffering, sometimes those words are hard to form. God, you are so good. I'm blessed, I'm called, I'm healed, I'm whole. I'm saved in Jesus' name. Where we desperately want to Proclaim those things and believe those things. Our experience would also try to pull us to maybe not believe those things. What do we do? How did Joseph endure for these 20 years? All that we can recognize is that he knew what God had told him in chapter 37. He knew God's character of faithfulness. And all that we can see through the text, not trying to assume, not trying to speculate, what we see through the text is Joseph continually giving glory to God, recognizing God's sovereignty, pointing people to Him, and acting and reacting as one who has faith that God is at work. But still recognizing this is far from perfect. And if I could be in a different place, boy, I would be. Could you remember me and get me out of here? So, what do we do? There's a bit of repetition from the call to action from last week to this week rest and trust. If you're in the midst of trial, rest and trust. Rest in Him. His yoke is easy and His burden is light, so rest in Him. Trust in Him because He's trustworthy. Patiently wait for God. Well, I don't want to do that. I don't want you to have to, but God is sovereign, and He's good, and He's faithful. He has not forgotten you in the midst of your trial. And so when I say patiently wait on God and wait for Him, I'm not saying muster up some more patience in you. I am wonderfully exhorting you in the name of Jesus, don't try harder. Don't try harder to be patient. Walk more closely with Jesus. Fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience. Patience. Patiently wait for God. And I wish that I could promise that your season of trial would end with a nice bow like Genesis does. I cannot. But what I can promise you is that God is good. God is faithful. He has not abandoned you. And we can walk intimately with Jesus in the midst of trial. And He will produce in us patient endurance. That remembering that trial is not always punitive, but it is always purposeful. That we can consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. Knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance, and that we can let endurance have its perfect result in us, that we will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, because God is good. Let's pray together. Lord, trial is hard, and it is part of living in a broken and fallen world. And it comes from all manner of sources. But ultimately, we can rest in the fact, knowing that you're sovereign. You are totally in charge of all things. There is nothing in this universe that escapes your authority. So Lord, if we're in the midst of trial, then I pray that you will press deeply into us to... To know you, to walk well with you. To know your character, to know your trustworthiness, to know your goodness, to know your faithfulness. And to cling tightly to those things. And you enable us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we thank you for your church where we can love one another well and to bear one another's burdens. And so Lord, for those who are in the midst of trial, may we lean on you and may we lean on your people And rest and know that you are at work. And that you have not abandoned us. And may we patiently endure to the glory of God.